So I'm back, Mommy Melusine with the Merwomanist podcast. And this is a real loosey-goosey one today. <laughs> I was not planning on doing a, a podcast episode this week as much as I wanted to start off really consistent because it's been a rough week. <laughs> and I won't get into all of the reasons why, but I've just been really, really busy with all the things, work, momming, um, being a daughter, granddaughter, everything. <laughs> so um, I didn't plan to do an episode, but I actually have something on my mind that I think is actually really relevant to this podcast. Um, even though the main topic is mermaids, I also want this to be a space where I talk about fantasy, race and fantasy, blackness and fantasy. And I have got a relevant conversation to get into. So I'm a big Game of Thrones fan. Um, I read the books that we got <laughs> in the series. I did not read the family history. So I didn't read um, the source material for Dance of Dragons, which is the new Game of Thrones show. Um, but I'm a big fan of the show. I've been watching since the first episode. I've been really enjoying it. I think there's some ways in which they're doing a little bit of course correction for some things that were off and not quite right um, with the original series that I appreciate. And one of those things is, you know, having Black people, <laughs> right? And having Black people play really central pivotal roles and not just kind of be rendered as um, subordinates or um, completely expendable in, in the ways that we saw happen in the original series. And so for those who, I'm not going to go into the details of the show. If you don't watch the show, you just won't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm not really going to go details into the, um, the backdrop and the context for this. But one of the major um, Dance of Dragons introduces another kind of aristocratic family in the seven, the seven kingdoms, which is the setting. Um, and this family is also from the same ancient land that the ruling family, the Targaryens is from. And so this family are the Valarians or the Valerians? I think it's the Valarians. Um, and this family is black. Now, from some of the sources that I've um, heard and, you know, watched a little YouTube analysis <laughs> to prepare for this show, um, George R. Martin had actually played with the idea originally in the book of the Valarians being Black, because um, these are kind of basically like the oldest people. And so they basically came to Westeros around the same time as the Targaryens, and they're both from the land of old Valyria. Um, I don't think he actually did that, but it was something that um, the show runners decided, well, I don't know who decided it, but it was something that was decided to be worked into the show. And so you have this um, sort of ancient wealthy family who also are able to tame and ride dragons um, who are you know, a part of this story and they're really central in the story. So that's something I've been enjoying. The wigs need work. The wigs, the wigs need work. I'm like, y'all just need to go on YouTube and get some of these black girls who know how to lay wigs and blend these edges, you know? And I mean, really everyone's wigs, not just the black people's, it just really stands out on the Valarians because the hair is like so white. And I'm in the faux locks. I'm like, man, there's people who do silver faux locks. Like it could look better than this. But other than that, I mean, they look fierce. They look phenomenal. I'm enjoying the role they play on the show. And it just has me thinking, um, 
the last episode um, that I saw, um, oh, Driftwood, um, was the funeral of um, one of the Valarians, so a Black or woman who I see and perceive as Black. She's not Black in our contemporary racial sense, but um, Lena, Lena, I believe, who died in childbirth. And so this episode is set in her funeral. Lena was a dragon rider and she rode the fiercest, um, largest, oldest dragon that exists in the kingdom. Actually, the way that she dies is during her childbirth when she realizes that she is not going to be able to successfully birth this child and that there is a chance that the maesters might choose to perform a cesarean that she certainly would not survive she chooses instead to go to her dragon and to demand that the dragon um burns her to death and so she dies like a dragon rider's death and she does it on her own autonomy and to her own accord and i thought that was well done i thought that was well done you know even though she died um like the character also dies in the books apparently um she took it into her own hands um, and I and I thought that it was well done. And I thought the funeral and the way that her character kind of remains a presence um, and kind of hangs over the next episode, like she doesn't just disappear. I thought that that was well done as well. Um, there is something that I think happens when you take these characters, you know, that weren't originally imagined to be in black skin. And when you put them on screen, I, this is something that I'm thinking about because I do plan on eventually writing about, you know, the live action Little Mermaid um, and just thinking about what happens because I think there's something that happens like it's not exactly the same. It hits the things that happen to this character will hit different. And I think the only way to prevent that would be to have more characters, right? Like to have more black characters, more characters of color and have them mixed in all throughout a story in a way where it doesn't hit different because there's different kinds of things happening to and for all of these characters. I think that in a lot of these fantasy projects, it still isn't, we're still not at that point. We're still very, um, we're still very peppered in there, you know, sprinkled, you know, a little bit like a, mm, give me a dwarf's wife here, give me an elf here, you know, it's still very sprinkled in. So the things that happen to these characters, because there still are so few of them, they do, um, they do hit differently. They do hit differently. And so what happens in this episode is that you have these two families coming together, the Valarians and Targaryens. Um, these families are known for being able to ride dragons, but not everyone necessarily gets a dragon automatically. Um, some people are born um, to their dragons, right? They're, you know, there's a dragon egg at the same time they're born and it hatches and they're able to bond to them, but some people don't get a dragon that way. And so they have to tame one if one is like available, I guess. And so what happens in this episode is that one of the Targaryen boys and the Targaryens are played by white people. They have light silver hair. So they're, they're very pale. They're real, they're real pale. And so the, um, one of the Targaryen boys 
while the mother's dragon is mourning her and her daughters are mourning her, it comes and it basically, it tames the dragon. So it tames the dragon, the dragon bonds to it, and it takes control of the dragon. And the daughters, Lena's daughters, confront him about it. There's this whole fight and he ends up getting his eye gouged out. So, so let me tell you how I, I'm not going to say I got in trouble on Twitter because it's still not really like that big a thing yet. But I just, I, I found the storyline a little triggering. <laughs> um, not triggering in a way where I'm critical. Like I don't critique it. I think what happened is what happened. But just watching it, you know, watching this white boy, you know, I'm sure that there's some viewers that experienced that moment of him taking control of that dragon as a triumphant moment. You know, the, the music swelled. You know, I think that we were supposed to experience it as a triumphant moment. I wanted his ass to fall in the ocean. I wanted him to fall in the ocean when <laughs> he first approaches the dragon and it looks at him and opens his mouth and the fire swells. I'm like, yes burn him <laughs> I, like I I just I did not want to see him I did not want to see this white child climb on this black woman's dragon while her daughters mourn for her and one of the daughters doesn't have a dragon yet right so you know you would think that you know and there's no guarantee that her daughter would have been able to claim it, that it would have bonded to her, but it's, she didn't even get the opportunity because while she's crying for her mother, not thinking about a dragon, she's crying for her mother, you know, he comes and he takes it. So they confront him. There's a whole thing. Um, and, you know, one of the things I always do after I watch an episode is I go on trigger, I, I go on Twitter and I searched the black hashtags, <laughs> dragons y'all or dim dragons. Shout out to um, Black Girls Nerds for turning me onto the the black hashtags for um, Game of Thrones. And I just got frustrated because I just saw a lot of commentary that um, that they attacked him for no reason and that he was only defending himself. And it was. It's just a very colonial logic. It's just a very colonial logic to take something from someone, right? To see, like, what is it that I'm watching that storyline? It just says something to me about race that I am watching that storyline in my Black female body and experiencing this as theft and their violence against him as completely justified, right? And that anyone else could watch that and, and, and see it differently. Like, I mean, there's room for difference of opinions, but I do think that there's something about race that allows us to experience these things so differently. So I saw people saying that, you know, they attacked him and he was just defending himself. And I got frustrated. And so I posted on Twitter, all of y'all saying Eamon was just defending himself when he stole those little black girl's mother's dragon on the night of her funeral or speaking pure colonizer. I wish that little ingrate would have fell off in the sea. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm not a big Twitter person. I'm not a big social media person. I don't, I don't study analytics. I don't, 
I don't really move with much intentionality in social media. I guess now that I have a podcast, I should probably start doing so and try to grow my following. Um, but, you know, I don't, my tweets don't usually do a lot of action, <laughs> you know. Um, but this one is, it's moving, you know, it's moving. It's a lot of people liking it and I'm starting to get some responses. And so, of course, I'm getting responses um, from people who are point, who continue to point out to me, he didn't steal the dragon. The dragon chose him. The dragon bonded to him. He didn't steal it. And then someone said, well, he didn't steal the dragon, but he stole um, the daughter's opportunity to claim it for herself. I'm like, it's theft. Like, it's still theft. I like, this situation is, it's just this discourse around the technicalities of did he steal the dragon or did he not steal the dragon? Did he have a right to the dragon because the dragon didn't kill him, right? So I think there's the sentiment that because the dragon didn't kill him, because he was able to tame it and ride it, that he had a right to do that. I might even give you that, but that that right also protected him from their anger and their and their violence against him in response to it. And I think that's what my tweet was about. And that's what I have a problem with. I have a problem with this idea that because in the logic of dragon training, this dragon is now his, that they don't get to be upset about it. I have a problem with that. I have a problem with that because it reminds me of, it just, it's just the most, it's, it's just the excess of whiteness. It reminds me of, you know, I'm sure you've seen like the Karen videos on YouTube, you know, where the women on the airplane or in the grocery store and the sidewalk will call a black person who's minding their own business, the N word with a hard R, and then when the black person beats their ass, they're, they're crying about it. Like, that's what that reminds me of. And even if we think back any further, which is why I said, use the word colonizer, what it really reminds me of is Terra Nullius, right? So this was the doctrine of discovery, the, the, the doctrine of no man's land, the belief that because indigenous people were not utilizing the land, as you know, the whites felt they should be, that they didn't have the right to take it from them. And the implication then from that is that if you have the right to do it, then people don't have the right to come fuck you up to get it back. Like they don't have the right to be mad about it. You don't have the right to face risk, <laughs> you know, for doing this, to face consequences for doing this. That's that. And I know, I know how the fan, you know, the fantasy nerds will be like, I'm reading race into it. I'm reading too much into it. But I do. I think that there is this, it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder about our investment in fantasy and our investment in certain types of fantasy narratives, especially these narratives around monarchies and thrones and ascension and rights, like who has the right, who has the better claim? 
And like, I, I won't excuse myself completely from these kinds of investments because look, I'm watching the show, you know, like I watch the show. I want to see who's going to win. You know, I, I'm not really picking sides in this one. Just, you know, I'm for the little black girls and anybody who protects them. That's, that's who I'm rooting for everybody black. <laughs> Maybe not everybody, but everybody black who I believe to be a decent person. Um, you know, so I don't excuse myself from that. But it, it makes me wonder sometimes when you see the way in which like the fantasy fans behave, is there something that is attracting people to these stories that is essentially wrapped up in whiteness? <laughs> and maybe that's why they don't want us in it, <laughs> you know? Like, it's not just that they happen to like these things. Maybe some people just like these things because you don't want us there. You feel like this is a world where you can go and you can get away from the reality of, of Black people and race and like all of that stuff. And so our very presence, even if we don't talk about it, our very presence brings it up because shit does hit different. And then when we dare to talk about it and to point things out and to call stuff out, then you want to talk about how mermaid skin got to be pale because they're under the water and they can't get no sun and no melanin. Then you want to talk about how dragon training works. You know, so like the fantasy nerds love to get into these technicalities in these details when we start calling out like these larger patterns and narratives both within stories themselves and which in the fandom that acknowledge white supremacy and violence. So yeah, that's what I think about that. You know, I, I, <laughs> I think that, I don't think it's a coincidence that the, most of the people who are like, oh, but he didn't steal the dragon and, did, and you know, they attacked him and, it, and they shouldn't have attacked him. I do not think it's, it's not a coincidence that most of these people are white. It, it's not, <laughs> it's not. And I'm not saying that all of them are, you know, I don't really know what someone, who I, someone identifies as behind a Twitter screen, but I don't know y'all. Like it's, it's just hard, man. It's hard to be in these fandoms. And I've, I haven't been super, super inculcated in these fandoms, even though I've liked these genres for a long time. I haven't, you know, my participating in online and, you know, having these discussions with people and going to conventions, that is still kind of a new thing for me. And it's like, wow, now I just see why the Black fans are like always ranting on YouTube. <laughs> you know, it's hard to deal with y'all, you know. So that's what I think about that. I want to use this whole um, my this whole experience with Dance of the Dragons to talk about diverse casting, right? Because we're seeing it with Game of Thrones, we're seeing it with Lord of the Rings, you know, we're seeing these um, different iterations of these attempts to, you know, have more diverse um, casting in these projects, and most of the time. These projects are things that were not originally written or imagined as having, you know, people of different backgrounds 
be a part of them. Now, maybe they weren't imagined in any particular way. There's also kind of a pattern that we've seen in fantasy where even when the writers are imagining people, their characters as people of color, when it comes to the screen, it gets whitewashed, right? Hunger Games is a good example. Um, Kat Everding was supposed to be brown, right? But, you know, it gets whitewashed when it gets to the screen. Um, but what we're seeing more often lately is these characters who, you know, were, were probably imagined as white, <laughs> as looking white, even if they weren't necessarily described as racially white, um, who are being cast in different ways. And so I've noticed a few different sort of patterns and types of this casting, and I want to talk about it a little bit. So one type of diverse casting is what I call undecided pseudo history. <laughs> And within that, I would include something like Bridgerton, which even though it's okay, I guess it's not fantasy, but I mean, it is, you know, um, I might even like put something like Hamilton in there. Like it's, it has some relationship to a specific time period, um, you know, but it's not, it's not really attempting to be entirely historically accurate. I call Bridgerton an undecided pseudo history because I feel like it can't decide what its relationship to history is. Um, you know, so one of the things that Bridgerton is doing is acknowledging the presence of Black people and Southeast Asian people um, and other races of people in, um, in this period, you know, within British history, you know, and it's true, people were there. But the ways in which they're incorporating people is not really making any kind of, um, is not making any sort of room for a discussion or conversation around the ways in which these people would have been racialized and would have been able to or limited in their participation in the upper echelons of British society at this time. And I don't know the details of how they would have been. Um, it's not my expertise, but the show's kind of pretending like racism just doesn't exist. And I know that's not the case, <laughs> right? I know that in Regency England, there's, there's definitely some forms of racism, even if it doesn't look like what we know and understand from a contemporary viewpoint in the United States, which is the location that I'm operating from. Um, so, but it's like, it's undecided, right? So it's like playing on the rumors that, you know, Queen Charlotte was at least like mixed race or biracial and making her, you know, like a black woman. Um, it's, it's, you know, putting some black characters or at least, you know, it's putting some black characters in some major roles in the first season. Then we have some Southeast Asian characters in, ma um, in major roles in the second um, season. Um, however, it's, it's like it wants to, it wants to be a little bit historical because you don't see no like dark skinned black people in major roles, right? I mean, I guess there was the Duke's father in the first season, um, you know, but he was really villainous and he was very much a side character, but you know, but the people who they choose to like really be central to the story are these very light-skinned characters, which to me is suggesting that the show does see a limitation 
on who would have been able to ascend within that society. So it's like you're willing to sort of acknowledge the reality enough that you won't cast certain people in certain roles, but then you also kind of want to throw it away at the same time and just pepper in these dark-skinned people randomly in all these ballroom scenes. Like it's almost like they become kind of like set dressing. So it's just a very undecided pseudo history. It doesn't really know what it wants to do. It wants to do this romance. It wants it to be diverse. It doesn't really want to deal with race. It doesn't really want to have to deal with it or explain it or deal like it just wants to be a romance. It, it just it just doesn't want to deal with it. And I think that's okay. So just like make it a fantasy. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be Regency England. You could take all the fashion, the mute, whatever it is that you like from that era, you could take it and you could just set it in a completely fantasy world. So that brings me to the second example of diverse casting that I have seen. And that is what I call, that is the complete fantasy, but balanced fantasy, balanced in the sense that the diversity is woven throughout all of the casting. It's not just, oh, let's put some like black people in this ballroom scene. So you could be like, there's one, <laughs> you know, but it's really woven throughout. And I think the perfect example of this is Roger Hammerstein Cinderella, or what we fondly say, Brandy Cinderella, <laughs> the Brandy Cinderella from I don't remember the exact, I want to say 1998, but I know it's the 1990s. So it was just a complete fantasy. It didn't try to explain um, race or explain how the mama was black, you know, and the king, you know, the queen was black and the king was white and the son was Asian and Cinderella was black and her two stepsisters were black and white and her stepmother was white. Like it didn't try to explain it, but it also, the casting was so well distributed where like there was no one family where everyone looked like each other that also none of these choices stood out. Like none of them stood out as, oh, I wonder why they're all white and this one over here like and none of them stood out because it was just so balanced in terms of how the diversity was spread throughout the entire class you know it ignored dna consistently <laughs> so i think that works you didn't need to be no you didn't need to do any world building around difference if you just kind of like ignored it um i think that to do to do that you have to do some affirmative casting in the sense that you have to bring in people of color for the roles in order to sort of override the natural balance towards white people. And this is something that I think white people just can't get their heads around, is that in order to have diversity, you have to try. Like, <laughs> like you don't get diversity by accident and you don't get diversity by just saying, oh, this is open to anyone. And then, oh, I don't know why the black people are here. Like you have to actually try, like you actually have to affirmatively <laughs> take action, right? In order to make sure that you're getting um, people of color into the casting room and into consideration because ordinarily they would be discriminated against for these kind of roles, right? So you have to work affirmatively in order to override sort of the, the, the racism that's embedded in that process. So 
you know, that will always be a classic to me. And I think, I think it's a good example of diversity well done. Like you know from the opening shot that, okay, this is not a realistic world. So I can suspend all of my disbelief and I can just enjoy this. So another example of diversity casting is race conscious world tweaking. <laughs> so that's when you have an existing world and you want to incorporate, you know, more diversity into that world and you figure out a way to do it that works within this pre-existing world's world tweaking. And so I think that's what we have with Dance of the Dragons and the Valarians. You have this family that already exists. You have these stories around them. You have the fact that, you know, there are these ancient people, right? And so it's like, okay, we're going to make this family Black, you know? So I, so it's still, it, it's not the same as this sort of peppering strategy you see in Bridgerton where like, you're just randomly throwing all these Black people here and there in Westeros um, and not really explaining anything about that, you know? Um, but it's kind of, you know, building it into the world building. Um, the execution of this can be clumsy, but I think it can work. And for the most part, I think it works. Um, you know, I, I think if you kind of pretend the other show doesn't exist, because then there's the question of, well, what happened to them? <laughs> you know, well, I don't know. The book readers probably know that. Maybe that this family gets destroyed because they don't seem to be around by the time of the action of the, of the original show. But, you know... I, it's fine. It's fine with me. It's fine with me. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that it works. I do think that um, with what happens to these characters, um, because there are still more white people <laughs> than, than these characters, sometimes what happens to them is going to hit differently, right? So when I thought that Lenore had been killed so soon after his sister dying, I, I was about to be real upset. Like, are you really about to kill this black queer man? And you just killed this one, you know, woman and the white boy took her dragon. Like, okay, y'all are going, you know, like it was, that was going to hit me differently because these characters are in this skin. And that's just, that's just, and that, that, that might be specific to me. I might be the only person who feels that way. I doubt it. <laughs> But, you know, I, that might be specific to Black people watching the show and white people probably don't care. Um, but, you know, I think it can work. I think it can cause some awkward moments because these character stories were already written. And so the things that happen to them once they are in the skin of a Black person and we're watching it as contemporary audience, I think it could shift the resonance of those things. And so I do think that there was... I think it was intentional on a number of levels that the writers decided to save Lenore at the end of that episode. Because from what I hear about the source text is that they do kill him. Um, okay, so the last example of diversity casting is so-called colorblind casting. <laughs> so with colorblind casting, purportedly they're not considering race, allegedly. The storylines of people of color, indigenous people and black people are usually devoid of any kind of cultural or racial specificity. Um, you know, and if it is, it's like very superficial. Um, racial difference is not acknowledged and nothing is done to compensate for the racial violence bias that still can make its way into the storylines 
there is nothing done to compensate for the way that race may change how a particular story hits for an audience. In colorblind casting, the white characters somehow still manage to be the most central in the POV point of view characters. And if not in the beginning of the show, definitely by the end. <laughs> and the characters of color still often are utilized in ways that subordinate them. And they still often face horrendous fates. So the show that I am thinking about, and this brings us back to mermaids, when I think about colorblind casting and how racist and violent it often can be is Siren. <laughs> so Siren was a show that um, debuted on Freeform in about 2018. And it's a mermaid show. And I mean, I do think that this is, I feel like Siren is the first time since Splash, because I still think Splash with Daryl Hannah was just like a majesty, <laughs> um, like a masterpiece of using natural effects. Um, to, to show a mermaid and having her, like, I think it still hits. Like you go back and look at Splash, she still looks very realistic. It still looks very beautiful. I feel like Siren was the first on-screen representation of a mermaid I had seen since Splash that I thought was just really, really convincing. And of course you have the CGI by this point, so it's even better. <laughs> um, so Siren is about this like sleepy town the sleepy seaside tourist town, I think that's in the state of Washington. And the there's a whole, like, um, what do I call it, community, but there's all of these mermaids that live in the ocean around this town. So this town, um, the founding myth of this town is that the founding father of the town fell in love with a mermaid. And so the mermaid is like the symbol of the town, right? And she's, a, the mermaid's an attraction for their tourist culture, and they have all these mermaid festivals. So clearly the show is really playing on settler colonialism and the way in which indigenous people um, have been used as like figureheads by the very same colonial project that, that you know, murder and exploited them. Because what we eventually find out is that the story of the romance between this captain conqueror figure and this mermaid is actually a story of murder. <laughs> the mermaid leaves him and he commits genocide against like all of the mermaids, right? So he like wipes out a huge portion of the mermaid population in anger for her leaving him. So I'm like, wow, you know, <laughs> like I, this, it, the show is doing these really interesting things with like settler colonialism, like thinking about mermaids and relationship to settler colonialism and indigenous people. And there's, you know, native characters and black characters and just all of these characters who are major characters in the show. The first mermaid that we see on screen is a black, is black. She is the first one we see and she's black, the mermaid who gets captured um, and she gets taken to this lab where she's experimented upon. However, the mermaid who is the protagonist of the show is white. Um, she comes to land pursuing the black mermaid who she starts calling her sister because this is sort of the language that humans give her to describe a woman who is important to her. I 
think that she was her lover. <laughs> you know, if there are any fans of Siren listening to this, tell me what you think. But that's what I think. But anyway, she calls her her sister. And she comes to land looking for her. And that's how she connects with these other characters, including sort of the main guy um, of, of the show and his girlfriend. Um, I might talk about this show in another episode and dedicate it completely to it. But one of the things I found really upsetting is by the end of that, first of all, all these terrible things happen to Donna. She's um, who the Black Mermaid, she's experimented upon, you know, all these painful things happen to her. She eventually escapes. Um, but by the end of the first season, she's dead. And this is something that continues to happen with the majority of the characters of color on the show. Um, and the characters of color who aren't outright killed seem to kind of be sidelined. So Maddie, the um, girlfriend of the male protagonist whose name is slipping my memory at the moment, initially him, her, and the mermaid kind of enter into sort of a, a polyamorous triad. It's very interesting. Like there's a couple of episodes. I mean, it's hinted at from the beginning, but there's a couple of episodes where they really go into it in this whole relationship dynamic. But then all of a sudden, like it just kind of like that whole story gets dropped. And then that Black girlfriend character Maddie just really kind of gets sidelined and by the end of the show the focus is all on the guy and Ren so you have this white guy and this in the white mermaid and it's a very typical heteronormative you know mermaid human romance so you know it's it's just interesting you know I think about the death of Donna <laughs> and I started writing about that a few years ago and it's one of the things that really started me thinking about race and mermaids and just like how, it's just so interesting how within fantasy, which is something where so much is possible, you can have dragons, you can have mermaids, you can have, you know, all of these incredible beings and incredible things happen, but there are still things about race that like, these writers who are mostly white, who are mostly men, cannot seem to imagine. <laughs> it's just interesting. It's just interesting. So I think I'm going to go ahead and stop there because I have no idea how long I've been talking <laughs> and I want to keep these episodes short. And I, and, but I do have a conclusion. So if these kinds of diverse casting just often don't quite work. Like, you know, it's good, it's good to see it, it's good to have the representation, but there are these moments of awkwardness and these moments of trauma <laughs> that could potentially come out of these characters who were not originally imagined as being part of these worlds being, you know, put into them in these ways, often by white writers, <laughs> right? Um, so if there are, if, if, if this isn't satisfactory, then what is? And I wanna make a proposal. What would be the best way to have diverse casting? We can make black people's shit. <laughs> we can make the stuff that black people, we could stop adapting these old white men's shit. Like if something, if a text originally is not imagining 
worlds that people of color are a part of, where worlds where indigenous people live and thrive, worlds where black people survive, <laughs> like the story, then don't adapt it. That's an option. There's other stuff. So I am just finishing, um, I am just finishing N.K. Jemison's Broken Earth Trilogy. I'm almost done with The Stone Sky. This is a massive fantasy world build. And it, it's, it's a world build that does not parallel our contemporary system of race, but it also does have some version of race in the story that works according to the logics of this story in this world, which is not synonymous with our own, right? Um, and, and that, you know, makes room, that centers on largely people who, from our contemporary context, we would consider to be people of color and Black people and mixed race people. Um, we could make Nalo Hawkinson's The New Moon's Arms, which is a mermaid novel, which um, features what I call the crossing merfolk narrative, which is the idea that those who went overboard during the Middle Passage became mermaids. I talked about that. <laughs> I talked about that in the first episode. We could do the deep, right? Same idea. So I marked up because I read this one in my project. We could do Skin of the Sea. You know, I wrote about this book for the Los Angeles Review of Books. And like, I, I've got a couple, I've got a few critiques, you know, like there's some things happening with the cosmology and Orishas that I was a little bit, I don't know, I'm not sure. You know, there's some things, but on a, on a whole, I just think it's so beautiful. The imagery was so beautiful, like the ways in which the different Orishas emerge into the story. I could just see all of it. It's so cinematic. It would be gorgeous on screen. And you wouldn't have to figure out a way to put Black people in it because they're already the center of it. We, we could just make this stuff. That's an idea. <laughs> That's probably the best way <laughs> to get diversity would be to make our stuff. I'm going to stop there. And next time, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. I'll let y'all know. Um, please subscribe, please rate. I would love five stars and please look out for the next one.